Hey Buddha Nation, welcome to the Ecom Show, where we invite e-commerce entrepreneurs, marketers, and agencies to talk about e-commerce, the best strategies and tactics, and what to implement in your own e-com store. Before we jump into this episode, I ask you to subscribe to this podcast. Make sure you share it with at least one friend. As you probably know, we don't run ads. Our growth is purely organic, so it would mean the world to me if you could support us. And now let's jump into the episode. Hello everyone, here is Daniel Budai with a new episode of the Ecom Show and today I'm here with two co-founders, Ty and uh, Parm, and they are the co-founders of uh, MuteMe and uh, this is a startup company, they are on Kickstarter, they have a very cool tech product and they were also in Shark Tank and on national television, so very interesting story and it's still a young company, so let's jump into this. Hey Ty and Parm, how are you today? Doing well. Thanks for having us, Daniel. How are you? We're excited to be here. Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks. And uh, yeah, I'm just going to California as we discussed it uh, before this recording. And uh, the guys, they are in Sacramento. So they are in California. And uh, let's talk about Mute Me. So when did this idea come up for you? And uh, what was your motivation or, or how this whole thing happened? Yeah, so the the idea came out of the pandemic. And so the the short story around this is that we had another co-founder came to us with the idea. Uh, a lot of people were having embarrassing moments, himself included, where they were forgetting if they were on mute. His professor at the time, same thing for him. And so that kind of stemmed this idea of what if I had a quick way just to, to mute, unmute myself, save someone the embarrassment or even save someone uh, losing a job we've seen a lot of different cases of people losing jobs because they said something that they shouldn't have said and he came to us with that idea me and parm we didn't really even know we, uh, we didn't know each other at all and he brought together this group and said hey i have an idea and we said it that has some traction and so we kicked it off and i think parm was it 2020 it's so far it yeah. seems like so long ago <laughs> yeah 2020 and, and started growing September 2020 and grew from there. Um, That's for the breakout of COVID. Yeah, yeah. So right in the middle. Right in the middle. And, and from there, we started putting our heads together. Uh, everyone had a different value from uh, expertise. So Parm Technical, uh, myself, uh, marketing, and, and some operations. And there was legal for Handeep. Uh, Bubbin, who came in a few months later, had some developing skills. And so we all came together, and that's where you kind of alluded to it. We we jumped on Kickstarter, and uh, eventually Indiegogo, and and got it kicked off from there. Yeah. So how many co-founders do you have all together? Five now, technically. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, and uh, we started with six. Um, and so two of the people that started with us from the very beginning, mm-hmm. uh, they actually left before the Kickstarter uh, campaign completed. So they, you know, um, there were a couple and um, they basically, what, what happened was he was in graduate, he was in graduate school, he was finishing up his graduate program and he made a decision to, hey, look, I need to go finish this up and go pursue this. Uh, you know, who cares about a little mute button for now? <laughs> but he's still an investor in the company. He's still, we still chime in from time to time. There's no, you know, 
bad blood or anything. It's just really just he was in a different place and needed to go a different direction. And then Bubbin, who's our lead software engineer, he joined the team about four months after we got going. Um, mm -hmm. Right as our Kickstarter campaign was coming to a close, uh, that's when he joined the company. And so mm -hmm. it was a yeah. – so, so we have five total co-founders at this point. Okay. And uh, I'm curious, so this is your first business venture or, or, or not, not the first one for you? We'll, we'll, we'll answer this question independently. I'll let, I'll let Ty go first and then I'll answer mine. So I think we both have the entrepreneur spirit. We've, we've had several different companies that we've done before this. Uh, not to this scale yet, but successful in their own ways. Uh, pardon me, I, my wife, we have a, she has a baby apparel company, so that one's been quite successful as well. So that one's congruent with with mute me as well but the entrepreneur spirit's always been there this is something that had just the scale took off right away when we were on kickstarter when we were on indiegogo we went on shark tank so it's something that that shot up pretty quickly and allowed us to establish a a hardware software company so not the first one but the the one been most invested in long term and going into this full time now and my, my, and I'll echo that, you know, um, my, my very first thing that I did that was entrepreneurial was back in the day, I sold music CDs to high school students as a high school student myself, right? It's like, you know, you buy the blank CDs and burn songs for kids and sell them. And this is like a throwback of, you know, of, of being entrepreneurial, of being entrepreneurial. So I've been doing this my whole life. My very first startup was a company called uh, DVD Droid. And this was also in that era of, you know, of when we actually had red boxes and movies and, and things like that. And we made um, software, developed this hardware and deployed a DVD rental machine. And that was, mm -hmm. but it was just the cost of deployment was just too large. Um, and so every time we would deploy, it would just like drain our bank account. And so the business wasn't sustainable. So a lot of lessons learned, you know, along the way. Um, but this is the first business that we've had where we've seen the growth that we've seen um, and the the dimensions to this business are just a little bit different from anything else that's like a normal traditional business. Um, mm -hmm. It's really a business that you can scale unlimitedly. You know, there's no limits to scale. And that's very different from what we've done in the past where there's always been, you know, massive limits to, to the ability to scale. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. so let's continue the conversation with this point. So... I have some ideas, but maybe some listeners, they don't. So why do you think it's so scalable? Yeah, so, so the, any type of business where your, the amount of effort you put in can be separated from the amount of money you can make uh, is, is what is where businesses become scalable, right? So software is infinitesimally scalable, right? So whenever you're someone's producing any kind of software, it can be replicated very, very easily. And so because it can be replicated easily, it's, it's very easily scalable. That's why the most powerful companies in the world are, you know, some software companies typically. Um, but hardware that's is... That's why investors love these companies, right? Investors love software companies, yes. But I will say, and this is just my personal take on it, the most valuable company in the world is actually a hardware company. <laughs> Apple is probably the most valuable company in the world, and they're a hardware company for the reason that they're able to sell hardware at scale as well. And so as long as you have the right partners, um, you're able to kind of build on that. And for a product like ours, we can, you know, sell 
100,000 units, we can sell a million units if we wanted to, you know, and it's really just our, our ability to get the product out in front of people and our ability to deliver value for customers. That's really the, the upper limits. Everything else will start falling into place if you can do those two things. But um, that's in, versus like a business which is, is a services business where you're sitting down uh, meeting with clients. If, they're, if, if it's a services business that's based just solely on your talents, then, you know, that's a little bit more difficult to scale. But I think anything can be scaled, but there's some businesses that are easier to scale than others. Software yeah. on one end of the spectrum and services being on the other end of the spectrum, you know? Yeah, yeah. and very human resources oriented businesses, right? And mo- those are mostly software businesses. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, uh, service businesses. Services businesses, yeah. yeah. Um, so let's talk about the product before we talk about Gymshark marketing, all of that. So what's the product itself and, and why is it so you know, attractive to customers. Yeah, so the product itself is a mute button that is connected to your virtual software tool. So it's right there. Um, I have mine right here. Yeah. Now you can. But it's, it's, it's not just that mute button. What it is, it's a product that is a tool for people that are working from home or people working at the office. And what it gives is confidence in these virtual calls. So we talked about it a little bit earlier on the call with there's a lot of uh, nervousness that goes around to if I'm on mute or I'm not on mute, some things that have happened uh, where people put their jobs at risk. They said some things that they shouldn't have and things that just led, if we could look at CNN as a great ca- uh, case for the certain uh, person on there that lost a job because of something. So what mute me is, is it's a product that's giving you confidence when you're on these calls and, the illumination part, the quick ability to mute and unmute yourself, uh, whether you're on Teams, Google Meet, or Zoom, has allowed people just to have a better workflow in their in their everyday life. And that's why we've seen people like Facebook, Amazon, Google, all become our customers and, and use this product. Mm-hmm. And uh, so who are your main buyers now? Companies? They buy it for their employees or more like individuals' employees? It's about so a- both. 60-40 split as of right now. Okay. Um, about 60% of our customers are, you know, DTC, DTC what you would call direct-to-consumer. Um, and then the others are B2B. Um, mm-hmm. And so about 40% of our business is B2B. And we never thought that the B2B business would be as large as it is. Um, it was kind of a surprise to us because we, as we were developing the product, uh, I remember talking to Ty and I'm like, Hey, I think we can like engrave the top with like a laser and this could be cool. And he's like, that's awesome. Let's do it. Let's, let's, let's pivot the product a little bit and let's, let's make that happen. And we did. And we're so thankful that we did because, you know, customers love having their logos on, on mute me devices. It's such a simple device to understand. And, um, and so therefore when they, when they receive the product and it's customized, it results in even more additional sales from other, from other people as well. So it's one of those things where um, we never knew it was going to be such a large part of our business, but about 60% of our business now is B to, uh, sorry, uh, D to C, and then 40% of our business now is is B to B. Yeah, I can see this. I can hear this so many times that we've never thought that B to B would be such a big portion of our uh, audience and buyers, and mm-hmm. it's such a common pattern, you know that. Uh, that uh, I, I, I just talked and interview, I interviewed a lot of businesses who are on the same path. They just never thought that B2B can be so big. So B2B e-commerce is as big as B2C e-commerce. I think many people, they don't know it. 
And and B2B also your customer acquisition costs are just completely different. Mm-hmm. And so on your um you know on your consumer side of your business, right? You could we we you know for us and I'll share this information publicly, but it's we spend you know roughly between seven to ten dollars to acquire a customer. That's typically what our yeah. customer acquisition costs are. Um, on the you know on the business to business side, right? Sometimes it's low as fifty cents, ten cents. Sometimes it's a dollar. Um, and so you know your margins on that side of the business are just much better. The customers mm-hmm. are are typically you know highly professional. You're not going to get ripped off. You're not going to have easier to handle. Easier to handle. Yeah, it's just it's just a, there's a lot of benefits of targeting you know businesses themselves and and working with the business community. And so um, it's mm-hmm. it's something that you kind of you hear about, but experiencing it yourself, you realize how much of a difference that that part yeah. of your that, that part of the business makes on your business. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So I have two more questions about the product. One is, I could see you have different models, not just one single product, but probably three products. And also, if I have this product, if I buy this product, do I need to install an app or how does it integrate with Zoom and with other tools? Yeah, so there is an app that's, an, that's required. And the number one reason for that is there's no standardization between different conferencing platforms. So everyone's doing something a little bit differently. Um, and so when you're trying to integrate something like a hardware button that's lit, that's going to now give you some type of feedback as well, we wanted to make sure that people had the best experience. And the only way we can guarantee a good experience is by having software. And so what the software does is it uses um, connections into both Mac OS and Windows to control those conferencing applications. And then even if we have a conferencing application that we can't control, for example, like I demonstrated on this call, we don't have any integrations with the platform we're using today, but we can still control the microphone in those cases because we have software running on the computer. So it just gives people kind of a more well-rounded experience, um, allows them to customize their colors, allows them to pick which platforms they want to sync with. We have um, customers, we had this one use case um, and we, we use this use case and we've mentioned this before, but the court reporters, and these are people who are taking notes in courtrooms and they have a headset during the pandemic, they would have a headset that, mm-hmm. that they would talk to because they were you know, remote. And then they had the, the broadcast audio coming in from the courtroom. So they wanted to mute their own microphone, but not mute the microphone that's from the courtroom. And with our product, you can do that because you can control different microphones that you mute and unmute. So the software just gives you much more flexibility. It gives you much more control. And we, when we set out, we wanted to kind of create the world's best mute button. I know it sounds so silly to say it that way uh, because it's such a simple thing, but that's what we wanted to do. And software was really the only way that we would be able to make that happen. And what I'll add just real quick to that, and, and Parm mm-hmm. did a great job of describing everything that a lot of people, you know, the immediate reaction, it's like, oh, it's just a button that lights up, right? But no, there's a lot of work that goes in the software, like he mentioned, with Zoom, Teams, uh, Google Meet, uh, WebEx, GoToMeeting. There's so many different platforms that we have to make sure the software works for. And on top of that, you kind of mentioned it is, do you know, you know how many different mics are people using out in the world? I have my AirPods on. Both of you, I don't, you know, I don't see your mics if you have them, or you might have just the default mic. But we also have to make sure the software is syncing with those because you're now adding a different piece to not only is it just a button that's muting um, the OS, but it's it's going to mute, needs to work with a mic that you're using and it needs to work with the meeting software that you're using. So there's a lot on the back end that goes into creating the software aspect for the tool. Yeah, there's like 24,000 lines of custom code 
in our app. And when we, the very first app that we wrote, and so it's like, if you go on YouTube, you can find some of our old videos. That app was only like 200 lines of code, 300 lines of code. And all it did was integrate with our button and it controlled the microphone at the operating system level. That's, that's all the original concept was. Um, and Ty posted a video yesterday and that's, that's all that app really did back then. Now there's like 24,000 lines of code. There's controllers that make sure things are synced properly. There's, you know, things that are making sure that, you know, things aren't crashing and failure detection and all this stuff that you have to do um, to make sure that things are working properly. Because even a platform like Microsoft Teams, and you're just thinking of, you know, or, or Zoom, it has like the main window, right? Then you minimize it and it goes to like a small window. Then it goes, you know, to an even smaller window. It gives you so many different ways that that one mute button is presented to you. And, um, and depending on how you're using it, and if you share your screen or if you do something else, it changes. And so being able to accommodate all of that is, is what, mm -hmm. you know, what we specialize in and making sure that we have our, our, you know, our core libraries that we develop ourselves are being able to handle all that. Yeah, makes sense. And uh, I think it's a core concept that software enables you and enables the hardware to have a more customized and a better experience. Mm -hmm. I think Tesla really... Tesla is one of the prime examples or, or Apple, but software and hardware works together so well and makes life easier and, yeah. uh, and customized. Let's talk about uh, Shark Tank and your marketing strategy. So when were you in Shark Tank and how could you ma make it? Because so many companies are, they, they would be jealous of you. Yeah, so we, you know, we'll say we're blessed, we're lucky, but it, it also is alluding to, I think, where we came as a company and our, our success on Kickstarter and Indiegogo kind of propelled us into being in the eyes of Shark Tank. And, and there's, you know, everyone's known that you can go to the casting for Shark Tank or you can apply, you submit a video during COVID, but there are cases where they reach out to companies that look like they might mm -hmm. be a good fit um, and they could be great on the show. And that's what they did for us. However, that doesn't mean they just said, hey, here's your golden ticket and you're on the show. Uh, that's a six-month application process. And they, they might reach out in this case and they said, hey, we'd love you apply. And then it goes through application after application. We had to put together a video. They want to see your personality. And then you keep getting to certain levels. You work with co-producers on your pitch. And then the real producers, they have to like it enough to even give you the opportunity to be on the show. And even if you make it to recording on the show – you're not guaranteed that you'll be on TV. And yeah. so you have to, you know, it, it, it's a TV show, right? It's, it is somewhat of a reality TV show. So they want it to be entertaining people, but it is at the core, like the, and I'm going to say it in this case, because it's a US show, but it's not just the American dream because you have like Dragon's Den as well. It's a dream of a lot of entrepreneurs, but that's what they're really harping on. And so it was at the core, the success of our crowdfunding that gave us the platform to get in front of them. And then uh, we, you know, we, we made it through all the rounds. We got on there. Uh, if you watch the show, it was back in 2021, season 13, episode two, uh, October 20, was it 15th? That's what it was, 15th. And, and so, and, and I, I don't have to, it was a big day. but it was, it was a big day. Yes. A very big day. Um, and, it, it was a, an amazing opportunity because they evaluate that marketing as like what four or five million dollars worth of marketing mm -hmm. that you would need to spend to get that kind of visibility. It doesn't mean we made four or five million dollars, 
being on there, but to have that visibility really uh, promoted or propelled our company to being more recognized. And then eventually this, like this past year, CBS had us on nationally and that even helped us more than Shark Tank because it came uh, at the recommendation of someone who recommends hardware products. And so uh, Shark Tank was really, really good for us and really uh, helped us get our name out there uh, even more. But it doesn't mean that we didn't get any, uh, you know, brutal hits on social media because uh, people like to take shots at, at our company, but we could take them. Yeah, I'm really curious. So this is amazing. I, but, uh, you know, you are not the first company who, who uh, was in Shark Tank that I interview here. Probably I had like five. And uh, I'm curious in actual numbers what you could see. So you could see a spike in traffic or, or purchases or, or it was more like a long-term thing you could see some you know steady improvement. So, yeah well uh, the cool thing is is we talked to a bunch of companies because we were because we didn't make a deal on shark tank and so when you don't make a deal on shark tank you don't even know if you're going to air or not right yeah and so we found out two and a half weeks before we did get an offer though but they took the offer back <laughs> yeah we did get the offer, but and we, we found out two and a half weeks before that um, that that we were going to air on national television. Mm-hmm. So then we're picking up the phone and we're calling everyone we know that's ever been on Shark Tank. Um, we're trying to get in contact with people because we're trying to understand what type of traffic this means, what type of sales this mm-hmm. means. And, and what we've kind of learned from our own experiences is the experience of being on Shark Tank has changed so much because the way people watch TV has changed so much. So people don't necessarily watch TV, sit there on Friday and watch it live like they did 10 years ago. They, they DVR it. They watch it afterwards. They watch it on YouTube. They watch it in you know, a million different places. On um, an airplane. On an airplane. Um, and so the, the fact is, is we didn't see the initial traffic that we, would, we thought we were going to see. Mm-hmm. But we saw sustained traffic that was way beyond our expectations. Okay. And so in that month, uh, we were you know, 15 days in we doubled our sales within that week than what we had done the previous month. Right. And so we were like, okay, that's cool, but that's still not like crazy. You know, you you did four X, five X, eight X, you know, you're like, okay, that's, that's interesting. But you, we thought it was going to be 20 X. We thought it was going to be 30 X, but, and, and we actually made a mistake because we didn't order inventory. We didn't order additional inventory. Cause we were like, you know what, this isn't that crazy. We can handle this. We were able to absorb it. Obviously, Shark Tank wasn't that big of a success for us, and we, we you know, we kind of thought that at that time. And it was a huge mistake because the week after that, we still did a crazy amount. The week after that, we still did a crazy amount, and it's just residual. It's still lasting, you know. So, like we, when we you looked and you talked to a bunch of um, influencers or you talked to a bunch of media folks, and they always talk about the spike. They always talk about how when you get publicity, it goes like this, and then it just yeah. comes right back down, and it's a little bit higher than where you left off. But, but, but that was not the case for us with Shark Tank. It went like this, and then it just kind of kept going and mm-hmm. kept going and kept going. And we ran out of inventory, you know, like two months later. Uh, and, you know, at, by the time we ordered the inventory, we were out of stock for almost 45 days. Um, and so it was just one of those things where it was like a hard lesson to learn. Um, yeah. But you know, so if anyone ends up being on Shark Tank nowadays in, in this generation, you got to remember that, hey, that initial peak, is not it because a lot of customers are now watching that episode, you know, a week later, a month later, 
two months later, you know, we, we, we've seen residuals from it, you know, all the way up until, you know, till now almost. So it's kind of, and then they do re they do reruns as well. On CNBC. So if you're in the United States, there's another network called CNBC. It's the business channel. They pick it up and they rerun it. We see, we see spikes from that. And then when they launched it on YouTube, so they, one year after we aired on national television, they put it on YouTube and then we saw another spike in traffic. And, you know, we were like trying to figure out where the spike was coming from. Um, and we were like, oh, okay, it's on YouTube now. <laughs> and that's where the spike is coming from. And so, you know, their, their YouTube channel or their our video got almost a million views, I think. Um, and so it was still, you know, a decent chunk of traffic that came through and uh, ended up purchasing purchasing the button. So it, it's kind of a unique story because we hadn't heard that before. Um, you know, like most of the every, everywhere else, everyone else you talk to, they always talk about that spike. And this is not what yeah. it was. It's not what it was from. Yeah, actually, I, I heard the same from most people. Um, yeah. yeah, but I think what you have, that's better than the spike for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. True. That's a, that's a great outcome. Hey, Budai Nation. Welcome to the Ecom Show. I ask you to subscribe to this podcast. And if you like it, make sure you share it with at least one friend. As you probably know, we don't run ads. Our growth is purely organic. So it would mean the world to me if you could support us. I hope we can serve our audience in the best way. And now let's jump into the episode. So let's go back in time a bit more. So you were on Indiegogo and Kickstarter. I think you are still on these platforms. And uh, what was your strategy? Also, which one you found better? What's your experience with these crowdfunding platforms? Yeah, so uh, our product might still be on there. We're not, we're not selling, it doesn't sell anymore on there. We just sell it e-commerce or we're now on Amazon, which has been a huge help for us. But mm -hmm. Initially going into it, we knew nothing about Kickstarter. We were brand new to everything. You know, we read as much as we could, reached out to people that might have had any kind of insight. And so we went into Kickstarter and um, had a goal of $15,000. And we planned it horribly when we launched. We launched just before Christmas and Thanksgiving when the cost of ad spend and everything is at its highest and yeah. everyone's making purchases. But, you know, we were just trying to get it going. And so we launched on Kickstarter. Uh, I forget the date. I don't know if it was right after Christmas. We barely got to our goal of 15,000. Christmas Eve, we, we hit our goal. Christmas Eve, we hit our <laughs> we goal. Struggled, of, we struggled to hit the goal. So. We did to get to $15,000, which, you know, honestly, at this point, looking back, wouldn't have really been able. We would have had to produce everything with 3D printing and not a manufacturer and, and just, you know, got the customers their devices. But what we did next is is we connected with a, a marketing group who specializes in crowdfunding advertising, mm -hmm. a really good group that we like to work with. And we started doing more ad content and that so, scaled. Do you want to mention their name? Jellop. Jellop. We work with Jellop. Jellop. Um, but so, we also, another thing, Ty, uh, we changed the product. Yes. Go ahead. <laughs> you can talk about, I'll, I'll finish this and, and we changed it. The quick version of changing the product is that it it was this button that you know it, you could click down on it and it was kind of uh, big and clunky and mm -hmm. then Parm because Parm is brilliant at hardware and changing hardware made a change of the product where it made it more modern it made it more sleek and so it just looked like a product that you would want to prove yeah that you would yeah it wasn't just a cheaply made product and so he made some good changes on that at the same time we started running ads with Jellup 
Um, and so we went from making that 15,000 goal in a couple of weeks to getting um, all the way up to over $150,000 that we were able to raise on Kickstarter. The new and then in that, was that? With the new product, with the, with, with the new product. With the, Mm-hmm. With the new product, yeah, and we so, didn't we didn't relaunch the campaign. It was still the same campaign. We made a we made a change mid campaign, which is also very crazy. <laughs> you know, it's not something that you would normally see a company do. Sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so what that propelled us into is then going to Kickstarter. You know, for us, and we had done some readings that you know starting and this may be different for everyone else, but starting on Kickstarter and then going to the Indiegogo platform after was really efficient. We could carry mm-hmm. over. Uh, Indiegogo, or you could carry over what you made on Kickstarter onto Indiegogo. Indiegogo will consider, like we did 150000 and so on Indiegogo, it'll show that you raised $150,000 mm-hmm. on another platform. I didn't know that. That's that's great. That's mm-hmm. great. It does, and it, so it, it helps with credibility, right? Because it's showing yeah, that, it hey, helps. they did 150000 yeah. And then on top of that, we did, I think, another additional, what it was, was like it? Almost one fifty again another 150 again on yeah. Indiegogo. So that it was over the course, I think about a just under three month process um, between those both platforms. And mm-hmm. that, you know, we mentioned it earlier, that's what got the attention of Shark Tank. It actually got the attention of uh, Staples, the, the uh, supply store here in the United States. And a short version of that story is, is you know, Staples and, you know, we're telling the truth here. And if you watch Shark Tank, you'll see the truth. Staples brought us into their stores nationwide. It wasn't probably the greatest timing for us to come in because it was during COVID where people weren't really going into stores and people just to have a product like ours, people are normally going to Staples most often for supplies and not for new cutting edge products. People buy before they go into the store a lot of times with Staples, but. But again, things happen for a reason and Staples was huge and we couldn't travel over to visit any manufacturers uh, overseas where we wanted manufacture because mm-hmm. of COVID. And they had people there that were able to go vet our manufacturer for us, check it out, make sure that they were reliable and that they were actually legit. And so that was really beneficial for us because then we moved forward with manufacturing, we could trust them. So a lot of these things starting with a question around Kickstarter would highly encourage going on Kickstarter. Uh, there, there is the risk of, you know, and you know this because you, you, you do a lot of um, content, you do a lot of email campaigns. You know, you do have to put money up front to, to get somewhere. So there was a risk that we had to, you know, pay Jell up some money in order to get our name out there. And it turned out well for us. So um, there was that risk. And then that went to Indiegogo, that went to Shark Tank, that went to, Mm-hmm. staples and all these things you know were kind of a tumbling effect of, of taking a little bit of risk and, and making sure that we you know put invested in our marketing we were trying to go as fast as possible so like it's hard to kind of like think back to that time but it was like we were racing you know it was like we, we have this product it's you know we think it's super valuable during the pandemic who knows what's going to happen after the pandemic we had no idea what what the state of work would be afterwards. And so we were just, we were running. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, from our first meeting to prototype, you know, was like just a few weeks, right? From that to having patents filed, to having the business set up, to having the Kickstarter campaign campaign going, to having the, you know, all that stuff was happening like every single day there was things that were going on. And 
And it was kind of, um, we, we moved away from a thinking about it mindset, like, oh, let's think about this or think about that into an action mindset of just like, let's get it done and let's mm-hmm. do it. And then we, and that's why we launched with the product that we launched with originally. Um, and so it was kind of a, kind of a cool, cool experience to, to go through all of that and, and, um, and end up where we ended up, but it was, it was definitely go, go, go in those early. early yeah, days. I think that mindset shift is crucial, you know, with an early stage startup because Many times you have assumptions, but they are all wrong. So it's just better to do it and, and just jump into it and let's try. And so, find out, right? You, yeah. You're not going to know unless the what the, the market is ultimately the, the answer, right? Exactly. So, yeah. so the market's going to present the answer. You don't know if your product is worth anything. You know, ideas are worth nothing, uh, you know, unless they're executed and executed well. And so changing the product midstream was a huge risk. But it was, you know, we, we thought we made the product better in every dimension. And so we did it. Making, you know, launching with Jello, right, was was a risk. But we did it. Buying the domain name before we even had anything going, you know. So I remember talking with the team and we were like, hey, do we want to buy Mutiny.com? You know, and it was like $1,200 or something. And we only had, you know, raised like $12,000 total. <laughs> and it was like, let's do it. You, know? you already bought the domain name back then? We bought the domain name because we, we knew that after the Kickstarter campaign, if we did well, that someone would buy the domain name and we would have a really hard time buying it. It would probably cost us $50,000, $100,000 to buy the domain name at that point. Yeah. So, yeah. so we, we, we knew that, like, you know, if, if this goes well, we're going to do it. And I, there's, there has to be a certain level of uh, confidence that you have in your product and your team, you know, in order to execute as well. So it was kind of yeah. there from the beginning for us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, so it sounds like you have a lot of marketing channels. So you have the crowdfunding platforms, you were on TV, and then Staples, and then Amazon, you mentioned, you have your own website, and I'm sure you run ads and you you uh, drive traffic to there. Um, so since I'm an email marketer, I want to ask you about email. How do you use email marketing? So email marketing, it's a, it's a good topic. So we are probably that's probably one of our worst channels that we are not very good at, uh, which is probably why our initial conversations had. And, and so um, we use email, but it's usually been for more, uh, let's say your typical like Black Fridays and stuff like that. So we, you know, consciously we need, we know that we need to be better at email campaigns and the, you know, the truth around it. And this is a, me making an excuse because I work on a lot of marketing stuff is that, we're a small company and there's so many different things to do that we just didn't put that at the top priority, which is probably cost us some money. Um, you know, we talked about the risk and that we took with Jellup and the risk that we take with, you know, we spend thousands of dollars a month uh, advertising on Facebook, on Amazon, on Google, and we, we're not giving that attention to the email campaigns, but um, you know, just through our discussions and through discussions or understanding, um, you know, how email campaigns do, it's something that we need to be better at and and start doing that more often because that's where we can remind people about our product. And I think early on we were a little bit nervous because we had one product. And so we were like, okay, if the customer bought one product, then what's the chances that they're going to come back mm-hmm. and buy again without an expanded portfolio? But that's that's not 100% true. We talked about you know the B2B aspect, the enterprise orders. We've had a lot of people who buy the product for themselves and then they're like this would be great for the company this would be great and so 
you know, admittedly, we need to be better at email marketing. Mm-hmm. You're yeah. the expert, so I can't, you, you have more <laughs> and better advice than I do about, you know, and I'd ask you, I'd reverse the question to you, I know it's your podcast, but what kind of benefits have you seen for a lot of companies who are implementing like solid email mm-hmm. campaigns? Yeah, so, you know, I could talk about it for minimum 20 hours. <laughs> and actually, I did in my course. So I, I won't do it here. But, uh, obvi- yeah, so, I in- as I said, I interviewed quite many uh, brands who were on Kickstarter, Indiegogo, and, like, 90% of them, they tell me that email is the most important channel. And not just, uh, you know, not, not just like a usual e-commerce company where email is important because that's the back end. And that's the core of the back end, and that's where you will make the fat profit margin, not on the acquisition and the first purchase, mm-hmm. uh, but also it's the core of their uh, crowdfunding activity. So they actively build the email list. They can email them. They can update people about the new features, the new updates, and uh, that's crucial. So I talk to many, you know, Kickstarters, uh, Kickstarter brands, or you know, brands who are there that uh, so they solely focus on the email list. They don't even want to make money. They just build the email list. And I think that's a very conscious effort. And uh, yeah, that's what I can see. Um, but end of the day, email is, is still here. And uh, if you can have returning customers or, or your customers, they refer your products, then uh, it can really change your business and your profits and your growth. So, yeah, that's what I can see there. Yeah. So we got to be better at it. But, I, I, you know, we sent out an email about, you know, feature release the other day. We just have full integration with Google Meet now. And, mm-hmm. and we saw just, just from that email, we had almost 1,000 people uh, install that extension okay. because it's something that they've been, they've been waiting for. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and that's within, I think, 48 hours of, of that email going out. So uh, lesson learned for ourselves is that we need to be better at it and, and go from there. And you also mentioned holiday or Black Friday campaign. So I know, and you should do it as an e-commerce company because it's an excuse for people to buy. That's how psychology works. Mm -hmm. But actually, you can make up holidays every month. And that's (laughs) what we do with clients. That uh, It depends on the niche. So let's say we have a pet brand and International Dog Day on September 10th or whatever because there is no holiday in September or, or in August. So you can just, you know, make up holidays and that's a good excuse for people to buy. Yeah. It's great for us. International Dog Day, make sure you mute before your dog starts barking at yeah. the door. So, <laughs> yeah. That's perfect. Um, so my last question to you today. So what would be your number one advice to startups who are just starting out now they want to be in Shark Tank. They want to be great in crowdfunding and, and you know, be in, in three years, let's say, they want to be there where you are now. Uh, Ty, you go first, and then I'll give a separate answer because I, I want to hear your answer too. Okay. So my answer is going to go off of what Par mentioned earlier, which is an idea is nothing unless you execute. And so early on for us, there's a lot, it's just risk. You know, you're, you have to put your fear aside and just go for it because you'll never actually know. And luckily we had so many people that were part of the group that you felt like that you had to keep going because they were, 
which I'm sure everyone had fear. And when you're by yourself, it's a lot harder because you're going to talk yourself down. So we didn't know anything about crowdfunding. We knew of it. I've known, heard of it. And so it's just education, educating yourself and taking risk. And the things Parm said, we took a risk on spending almost over 10% of the money we made on a domain name with the hopes that it worked out. We took a risk with Jellup and at, you know, spending lots of money on advertising so that we could get that ROI in return. And then it just kept rolling from then. There's a lot of different risks, the amount of legal fees for patents. There's just, you have to be comfortable with taking risk, but knowing that the, the result, it could be something great. You can be able to have a company that you call your own, that you've grown, that you could be in control of that company. But it's still something that we face every day. We're working on our next products. That's going to be, you know, in the world of where world's going in AI, which we're really excited about. We're not going to talk about it now because we're not Sounds ready to. Exciting. But, but yeah, but there, there's risk in that as well. And you're always going to face risk, and you have to learn to be comfortable with it, um, and and just take that chance because the the, the results can be great. And it's better to know that you took that chance than you didn't. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Go farm. Um, yeah, for me, um, I would say that I echo everything mm -hmm. that Ty said. Um, additionally, one more point to just touch on is finding the right team. Um, mm -hmm. So in the very, very start, uh, I would say that I, you know, didn't know Ty completely, didn't know Brittany completely, you know, didn't know know them well enough, but when we met and we started talking to one another, it was very apparent that we both had an entrepreneurial mindset that we were both, you know, folks who wanted to move quickly, wanted to move fast. We were both folks, we were aligned on a lot of core things um, and we had different skill sets. And so we had different skill sets and, and ultimately, you know, I, I use this word with Ty every once in a while. I'm like, man, you're so nice, right? He's just a nice guy. <laughs> and so working with people who are just nice, who are easy to work with also mm -hmm. helps. And so, Finding the right people in the very, very beginning is probably the most important thing. So you have an idea, you have something you want to pursue. You have to find people that not only believe in the idea, but also have complementary skill sets to you. They also have to, like, there's so many check boxes you have to, you know, check off in that, in that very, very beginning. And, but once you do that, then everything else from that point forward goes, goes a lot faster and goes a lot easier. And when we, when we met, and we, we started talking, we knew that we all had different skill sets. And that was like key. We knew that we all had a similar agenda. We all knew that we all had a similar belief in with respect to the idea. It wasn't the same belief. It wasn't like, hey, we want to make a mute button. That's not what, what the belief was. It was like, hey, we think we can make technology that helps people with this particular problem because we've all experienced this particular problem, right? So so we now we're able to kind of coalesce around like some like a what you would call a vision. And that really changed how we approached everything else going forward. And then, of course, you know, an idea isn't worth anything. Of course, you know, all these other things start playing in. But having that core team in the very, very beginning is just absolutely key. And us, we're very fortunate that we have the team that we have. Um, you know, there's days where I can't do something and Ty picks up the ball and he runs with it. There's days that, you know, Bovin is, you know, working. He's on the East Coast. And, and so he's working 2, 2 a.m. our time. So it's like 5 a.m. <laughs> And he's working on something. And so I wake up in the morning and it's like, oh, I see that he's still online. And it's like, what, what are you doing? And so you have this team that's just willing to move the ball forward. And the other thing is, is making, um, this is a quote from Bill Gates, but it's how much progress you make in a short period of time 
versus how much progress you can make over a long period of time, right? So people overestimate what they can do in, you know, a year, right? And they underestimate what they can accomplish in 10 years, right? And yeah. so it's like, you know, give yourself a little bit of slack and keep just moving moving the ball forward. Um, I spent the last probably, what, seven days, eight days working on this AI chatbot thing for just in, just this internal customer service tool, nothing, nothing that's going to be, you know, like super, it's not going to move the needle a whole bunch, right? But it's incremental progress. It's making progress and we're moving the company forward. So, I mean, those are my thoughts just at a high level of, of what it takes, but that the core team is, is really the key. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Similar values and beliefs, but different skill set, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's the it's hard to find. Um so this is, you know, I've been on a lot of different teams. Um and on every team you'll have someone who, you know, takes who leaves in the very beginning, you know. <laughs> you'll have someone that isn't interested. You'll have someone who who believes in you but may not believe in the vision of the company. Um and so these are all problems that you kind of have to be careful with because if you've done something, so once you've done something and you've been successful before, Now you attract people to you who are attracted to you. They're not attracted to the vision of the company, but because they're attracted to you, they want to know what you think. They want to know what you're doing. They want to know what you're about. And that's really not what the company needs. The company needs someone who's attracted in the vision of the company because it's about what does the company need? What does the company need to move forward? What's best for the company, right? And and having those opposing viewpoints and having those, you know, those arguments that move the company forward are key and you can't have those with people who who idolize you or just look up to you you have to have those with people who believe in the vision right the, the bigger vision and that's like something else for folks who've done something before if you're if it's your idea and you have um just people who just blindly follow you that's not great either you need to have people who challenge you as well mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah thanks a lot uh, ty and parm today um that you shared your story and it was very interesting to to listen to you and um, thanks uh, to the listeners who who uh, listen to the podcast today or watch the live stream and stay tuned because every week we come out with a new episode and if you want to check out this amazing mute button then go to muteme.com it was an expensive domain so Sure. <laughs> yeah. and uh, i'm also excited to see the new the new ai tool and you know where you will be in one year or in a few years i think it will be a very exciting journey for you and for your customers and uh, before i leave also i will uh, leave a uh, free um, 50 point checklist in the description in a link everyone can go there and download it this is what we use with our clients to audit their email marketing And uh, thanks again, everyone, and uh, have a great day. Thanks, Daniel. Have a good time in California. Yeah, bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye.